0: Let's open our Bibles to the book of Titus, chapter number 2. Titus, chapter number 2. If you can find the book of First Timothy, then you can probably find the book of Second Timothy. And if you can find the book of Second Timothy, you can find the book of Titus, because it comes just right after it. Titus, chapter number 2. Isn't it good to be in the house of the Lord tonight? Yeah. What a blessing to be here. And uh, I think, Brother Jim, I, just, I think that's a good strategy. We just need to start telling people that the kids are singing every week. And, uh, they need to be sure and invite their families out. And then once they get here, it's too late, right, Taylor? I mean, once they get here, it's too late. And, uh, they're, they're not here, but I'm gonna brag on them anyway. Um, Jerry and Jessica did an amazing job on, on Friday night. And, um, Jim, you're expected to remember all this verbatim and repeat it to him. Uh, they, they did a phenomenal job. And I don't say often enough how much I appreciate them and all those that labor in our children's ministry. I was telling Jerry on, on, uh, on Sunday night, you know, my little boy got saved. Was it last year? The year before. Last year, I believe. Um, and you know, we're all, all of us young families, we're starting to see our young people come to Christ. And I told him, I said, what you're doing on Sunday morning had a lot more to do with my son come to know Christ than the sermons that I'm preaching to them on Sunday night. Uh, I, I hope that God's using the things that I preach in His heart, but the reason we have that children's ministry is because we want to get the cookies on the bottom shelf, right where they can reach them. We want to have the truth right down there where they can understand it in a very clear way. And uh, we don't hide our kids away from the main service. It's good for them to be in the main service and in preaching we have that children's ministry because we believe in it. We believe it's valuable. And uh, so, you know, I just thanked him on Friday. I said, you know, you, what you've done has contributed, maybe in more ways than what I've done, to my uh, son knowing Christ. And I think many of us young uh, parents could say the same thing. Uh, and so, you know, we just ought to appreciate them. It, just, it goes a long way. You wouldn't believe the difference it makes. And uh, they pour their heart into everything they do. And I'm thankful for them, thankful for all those that labor in ministry. But uh, that, that children's church Christmas party on Friday night uh, reminds me of how thankful I am for them because they did a great job. Titus chapter number 2 tonight, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 9. Titus chapter 2, verse number 9. I want to read down to verse number 14. Then we'll go to the Lord in a word of prayer. The Bible says, "...exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters, and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly, in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Let's pray together. Father, we love You tonight. Thank You for letting us be here. And I pray that the Holy Ghost would take His sword at Your Word, Lord, and that He would wield it in our hearts and minds. He is up to the task, Lord. I have no doubt about that. But help us to make our hearts fit to receive the Word of God. May we be uh, humble, Lord. May we be self-searching, Lord. May we be yielded unto You as You seek to do that deep work, that hard work in our heart and in our mind, Lord, of exposing areas of disobedience or of pride, Lord, tearing them down, of maybe, Father, giving us encouragement in areas where we need encouragement, Lord, correcting us where we need correction. Lord, help us to let You do that work. And we know, Lord, that we'll be the better for it. And we'll surely give You the praise, honor, and glory for Your deserving of it. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want to preach to you for a few moments not on the grace of God. Titus chapter number 2 uh, deals with the grace of God and is in many ways a treaty on the practical effect of grace in the life of the believer. I remember hearing a uh, years ago a tape of Dr. Harold Sottler preaching and he was talking about the grace of God, and how would we define the grace of God? Of course, we often have used that little acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense, but I think Dr. Seitler had it right when he said, you know, at the end of the day, we can try to define grace all we want, and we're never going to get it done. He said, you might as well try to drink the ocean as to define grace. He said, you might as well try to hug a mountain as to define the grace of God. And certainly that is true. If we were to seek to be exhaustive in describing the grace of God, well, we'd we'd never go home. That's what eternity is, amen? Uh, Eternity is us just rejoicing in, marveling in, and glorying in the grace of God, telling that story over and over and over again, and never getting it all told of how good He's been to us and all that He's done in our life. But whenever Paul writes to the young preacher Titus, He takes the grace of God and he brings it down to a practical level. I'm struck by the context of this passage because if I was just to read to you verse 11 through 14 about the grace of God, you know, you would place that in some place like the book of Ephesians maybe that deals with those heavenly places. Or you might put it in the book of Philippians that deals with the inner strength that girds us in the face of trials and difficulty. But here in this little pastoral epistle, in a very practical portion of it, we have this great sort of doxology, this praise song for the grace of God. And I think that's a beautiful thing, because the grace of God, hey listen, as precious as it is, it is still practical. Uh, Listen, as miraculous as it is, it's still meaningful. Amen? As wondrous as it is, it's still workable in our lives. And so the grace of God is not just some abstract concept that floats out in the ether of our theology, but it is a real meaningful truth and reality that shapes the way that we live our lives. Consider for a moment the context that is given here. Verse number 9. Here's the question. Why are we given this lesson on grace here? And we have some sort of hints at it. Verse 9, he says, Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters and to please them well in all things. I would say this, we need the grace of God, and the truth we'll find in our text here tonight, number one, because of our station in life. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, he is exhorting Titus to give this counsel to those that have arduous lives, that have taskmasters above them, who are living lives that are not lives of luxury, and of ease, and of autonomy, but rather are having to deal with the real-world ramifications of a sin-stained and sin-broken world. And he's saying, listen, if you're going to navigate through this, you're going to need the grace of God. I wish I could tell you that every Christian is the kind that you'll never need grace with them, but I'd have to lie to you to tell you that. I wish I could tell you that I, as a pastor, am always going to live in a way that you won't have to give me grace but I'd have to lie to you. And I wish I could tell you that as you navigate this world, there will never be moments when you chafe under the difficulty of uh, earthly relationships and earthly responsibilities and you need the grace of God to know how to navigate it correctly. Not only because of our station, but look at the next phrase. Uh, I think the Holy Ghost had me in mind when he pinned this down. Not answering again. Now, you know what that means? Not talking back. That's what it means. He's saying exhort those that find themselves in earthly relationships and earthly circumstances where they have taskmasters over them that are not kind, but are rather cruel. Exhort them to be obedient unto their own masters, to please them well in all things. And then he says this, not answering back, not talking back, not with a rebellious attitude or an insolent attitude. You know why we need the grace of God? Not only because of our station, but because of our temptations. You know why? Because it's the most natural thing in the world to act in the defense of your own self. Uh, It's the most natural thing in the world when people uh, abuse you and accuse you to want to fly back at them, to want to try to take matters in your own hands, to want to try to take that vengeance that belongs only unto the Lord and, and, and claim it for your own and try to fight your battle and stand up for yourself and show them what's for. The reality is, it's not just the brokenness outside that the grace of God has to deal with. It's the brokenness inside of us. That the grace of God has to deal with. I don't just need the grace of God in my life uh, just so because other people aren't uh, aren't uh, right to me. I need the grace of God because sometimes I don't act right towards other people, and my natural tendency, my my fallen flesh. I, I thought it was interesting. I heard a preacher say this the other day. He said, "Anytime someone says human nature, cross out the word human and write the word fallen in, because that's really the truth of the matter. It's a fallen nature. It's a sin cursed nature." And in my sin-broken condition, you say, Preacher, I thought you saved. I am saved. But this old flesh is just as lost as it ever was. Uh, Listen, I've been given a new man living within. I've been given a sure foundation and an anchor for the soul. But uh, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. This old flesh, uh, in it dwelleth no good thing. And my flesh is just as rotten as it's always been. And as such, man, I need the grace of God to overcome the forces, the gravitational pull of that flesh upon my spirit and my attitude and to allow the glory of God and the testimony of Christ to shine through. He says, not answering again. And then he says this in verse 10. He says, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity. What does the word purloining mean? I think there's a word that we might use a little more common today that might uh, convey the idea skimming off the pot. The idea is he's exhorting servants to be above reproach in all things and he's saying don't take advantage of even those that are taking advantage of you. And instead he uses the word fidelity. What is fidelity? Fidelity is integrity. He's saying instead of living in such a way that you're trying to look out for yourself and get an angle all the time and always get under you, he said instead live a life full of integrity. And I'd say this, we need the grace of God not only because of our station and our our temptation, but also because of the expectations that are put on us. Remember, he's writing to save folks here. He's writing to believers here. And what he's saying is don't forget that there is an expectation put upon you as a believer that is not placed upon the lost man. Listen, I need the grace of God in my life so that I can keep the testimony that God desires for me to keep. I understand that the world has our lives under a, a, a microscope, under a magnifying glass at all times. If you don't believe that, if you work a public job, you just mess up, and they'll let you know that. Well, I thought you was a Christian. You know, you say, "Well, I thought you was an Oldsmobile man. Why are you driving that Toyota?" Amen. <laughs> I, listen, I, I I thought you was a Christian. And of course, their concept, it's not that they believe that it's impossible for Christians to do wrong. It's just they want to remind you that you've messed up before. Uh, we have expectations placed upon us. And then look at the end of verse 10. I like this. He says that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. Man, there's so many good things in that verse. Uh, so many good things. Doctrine. I know there's people have the problem with doctrine. People don't like, they don't like that word doctrine. Uh, but the Bible says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. What does doctrine mean? It means a teaching. We ought to learn the truth, the Word of God. But hey, we shouldn't just learn it. We ought to live it. He says we ought to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. And I need the grace of God because of our decoration. Because my life is to be a living example of the grace of God to other people. They ought to see the teachings of the Word of God in our life. And I like that word adorn. You know what it means? It means to bear it in a well way or to wear it in a way that is becoming. I'd say this very often. We have all of the doctrine a person could have and it's as straight and it's as solid as can be. We just don't wear it well sometimes. We wear it like a uh, shield to protect people from scrutiny of our life. Or sometimes we wear it like a battering ram or a charging shield that a SWAT team might have so that we can run somebody down with it. But that's not to be the way we're to wear the doctrine of God. Uh, Instead, people ought to look at our lives and see us draped in the truth of God's Word. They ought to see in our life an example of what it means to live a biblical life. We ought to be a Bible-believing, but not only Bible-believing, a Bible-living People ought to be able to see the Word of God. So because of these realities, because we're living in a broken world and we're a broken people and people know we're a Christian and they're watching what we're doing and we have a duty and responsibility unto God to live a life that is becoming unto Him and is glorifying unto Him, because of this... Paul deals with the grace of God. And in dealing with God's grace, he deals with three realities concerning the grace of God. And I want you to notice them with me tonight. Look at verse number 11. The Bible says this, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. What an amazing verse. Here we have the revelation of the grace of God. You know, the Bible on several occasions speaks of the grace of God uh, and particularly in regards to the plan of redemption for humanity as having been a mystery. Now the word mystery in the Bible is not like the word mystery that, that we use today. When we think of a mystery, we think of something that cannot be found out. But the word mystery in the Bible goes a step further. It does mean something that could not be found out by human intuition or human investigation. But it also means something that has now been brought into the light. It has been revealed and disclosed unto us. The Bible talks about the mystery of the wisdom of God, the mystery of, of dispensations, uh, the mystery of God, Christ in us, the hope of glory. There are several mysteries that are spoken of in the Word of God, but one of those is the mystery of the grace of God. There was a time when it was known only to the heart of God Himself. But we no longer live in that time. We now live in a time where the grace of God, His willingness to take all the wondrous th- that He is, and, and put it to our account, not through our own merit, not through our own earning, not through our own good works, but through His own love and mercy, that reality of God's character in nature is now revealed to mankind. I've been preaching through, teaching through, talking through, I don't know what you'd call it, <coughs> excuse me, the book of Ephesians in Sunday school. And one of the things that we've dealt with in Ephesians chapter number 2 is how that God in seeking to express grace as a component of His character, He uh, unveiled to humanity this plan of redemption through their brokenness. Uh, One of the questions people will often ask is, why did God allow Adam to sin in the garden? And it's a good question. It's a fair question. It's an intellectually honest question. Why did God allow Adam to sin in the garden? And there's a very simple reason that relates to God's nature. God, in creating mankind, He wanted to express to some creature, some being, the fullness of His person. Uh, There were certain things that God, just dwelling in His eternal glory, could be known concerning. Uh, you, You could know that He was a powerful God, that He was a capable God, that He was a wise God. But there's certain elements of His character you couldn't have known. You couldn't have known He was a merciful God unless you needed His mercy. You couldn't have known He was a gracious God unless you needed His grace. You couldn't have known He was a loving God unless you had a concept of what love meant meaning that you understood brokenness. And so God, in seeking for there being a, a a being, a creature who could fully apprehend who and what He is, He created mankind, knowing mankind would sin, knowing mankind would do wrong, knowing that it would send His only begotten Son to the cross of Calvary, yet still He did it, not for our glory, but for His glory, not just so that we might be known, but that He might be made known. So that that mystery that has always existed in the heart and mind of God could be revealed to someone other than himself. He wanted to impart that and express it to someone else. And that's what we have sort of a cliff note on here in our text. Notice with me in verse number 11, we see the miracle of God's grace. For the grace of God, what does it do? It bringeth salvation. Man, what an amazing thing. You know the greatest thing, the grace of God, and it's done a lot of things in your life and mine, but the greatest thing it ever did is it saved us. The intent of the grace of God. The reason He sought to impart this of His nature and of His character was not just to put us in a bigger house or a nicer car. wasn't just to heal us of physical, uh, fleshly diseases. The purpose was to redeem mankind from the curse of his own sin. It bringeth salvation. And a man does not know the grace of God until he first knows God in His grace. Knows Him as Savior. I like how he says that later on when he talks about verse 13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He's both those things, isn't he? He's a great God, but He's also our Savior. And the fundamental way in which we know Him, the great miracle of God's grace, is that it saves us. A person, whatever they may know about God, they don't know God unless they know Him in His grace. And to know Him in His grace is to have come, to come to Him for salvation and receive that salvation unto Himself. And, and by the way, if the grace of God can do that, if it can save a sinner, and I know we use that terminology so much, it, it almost just sounds like it's boring, like it's no big deal. You understand the greatest problem that mankind has ever faced is their sin problem. And the grace of God addresses that. The grace of God overcomes that. The grace of God rectifies that. We see the miracle of God's grace. But then we see the manifestation of God's grace. A lot of people misinterpret this. It says, hath appeared to all men. And a lot of people will really try to, I mean, they'll do, they'll do uh, intellectual cartwheels to try to make that mean something it doesn't. That does not necessarily mean that every person walking the earth fully is aware of or apprehends the grace of God. Nor is it necessarily saying that every man walking the earth, if they can look up at the sun, they're, they're partaking in the grace of God, the goodness of God. Certainly it's true that every human being does partake in, in God's benevolence and God's favor and the very fact that we're allowed to draw breath. We don't deserve that. The very fact that we can see the sunlight, a sunrise, a sunset, breathe in oxygen, hey, that is the grace of God. He's being gracious to us. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not speaking, I'm going to use some $10 words here, but I'll explain them. Listen, He's not speaking of an appearance in a quantitative way, but in a categorical way. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, He's not saying every single person walking around and seeing the grace of God. He's saying the grace of God has appeared to every type of person that is in existence. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, it's appeared unto every people. It crosses racial lines, financial lines, political lines, social lines cultural lines. The grace of God extends to anybody that's willing to receive it. God doesn't care what your background is. God doesn't care what your foreground is. God doesn't care what you've been through. God's willing to save you no matter who you are, no matter where you are. The manifestation of God's grace. God didn't form a queue, form a line, and and say if you meet this criteria, line up and, and show up. That's what the Calvinists believe, but that's not what your Bible teaches. Your Bible teaches that He said, any that come unto Me, I well, will no wise cast out. That He tasted death for every man uh, and that any that come unto Him, He'll save, He'll redeem. Uh, that He so loved the world uh, that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believed in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. We see the manifestation of God's grace. Then look at verse 12. He says this, teaching us that. Now I'm going to stop there. We're going to deal with this more in, in detail here in a moment. Let me just say there is a message to God's grace. So, What do you mean by that, preacher? Well, I mean this. It ought to be when we recognize and apprehend the truth of the grace of God that that informs some things in our life, that that changes us, that that defines us in certain ways. One of the things we've been teaching about in the book of Ephesians, and this is the central theme of the book of Ephesians, is the displacing of our old identity with a new identity in Jesus Christ. When I got born again, it taught me some things. It taught me that what I was wasn't enough. It taught me that who He is is all I need. It it, it taught me that the way I was living was the wrong way, but it taught me that the life He'd give me was exactly what I need. It taught me some things. And I'd say this, that when we get born again, that's really what the transformation of the Christian life is it's the grace of God disclosing and making real to us, galvanizing in our soul certain truths and realities that it both implicitly and explicitly teaches us. In other words, God changes our worldview, changes how we think, changes what we believe by His grace. And then look at verse 14. So he's listing all these things about the grace of God. For the grace of God, it bringeth salvation. It hath appeared to all men. It it, it teaches us. But then he says this, Speaking of Jesus Christ who gave Himself. So what does the grace of God do? It brings, it appears, it teaches, but then it gives. And here we have the means of God's grace. What does the grace of God give unto mankind? Well, it gives God Himself. Because God and our great Savior, Jesus Christ, gave Himself for us. What a wonderful trade that is. uh, That He'd be willing to trade Him for me. I wouldn't have traded Him for me if I'd been Him, but He traded Him for me. He said, I'll take all that I am and give it unto you if you'll just take all that you are and give it unto me. That still don't make sense to me. I've been trying to compute that thing for 20 years now, and I still can't make sense out of it except to say glory to God that He gave Himself for me. So we have here the means or the foundation or the premise of the grace of God. What is the grace of God based on? It's based upon that great sacrifice of the Son of God for sinners. That He was willing to step into our place so that we can step into His place. Our place was a place of cursing, of 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 of, of forsakenness, a, a place of damnation, a place of exclusion. And Jesus Christ stepped into that place so that we could step into His place. What was His place? His place was a place of fellowship. His place was a place of privilege. His place was a place of praise and a place of glory. Uh, he stood on. He uh, walked into the place that we stood on the cross and put us on his throne in heaven. That's the grace of God that God might look at him and treat him like us, and then look at us and treat us like him. Paul deals with the revelation of the grace of God. But let's go back and pick up that phrase back in verse twelve. He says this. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We see in this not only the revelation of God's grace. So if I'm going to live the way that I need to live, if I'm going to be the Christian I need to be, I need to understand what the grace of God is. And it is essentially, as we've already said, God's riches at Christ's expense. It's the fact that He took my place on the cross to give me a place in fellowship with God. That There was that great exchange that took place between us. And I didn't deserve it. And I didn't earn it. I didn't work for it. And I didn't pay for it. Just through His own grace, because He's a loving God and a gracious God, He said, I'll take your place and give you my place. That's the grace of God. If we're going to understand how we need to live, we need to understand that. And then understanding that, that will teach us some things. We see here the education of the grace of God. When you get born again, there are some things that are immediately apparent to you. There are some things that, that, I'm going to use the word implicit, that are implied to us. Some things that are suggested to us by the grace of God. What do we learn when we get saved? Well, number one, we learn who God loves. Verse number 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men. You know what we learn when we get born again? We learn that God loves us. And when we extend that beyond and recognize the truth of the availability of salvation to any and all that will come unto the Lord, you know what we learn? We learn that God is a loving God that loves all men. We learn that He's willing to love those that are not lovable. He's willing to love those that cannot love Him the way that He deserves to be loved. For never a one of us has ever loved Him the way He deserves to be loved. We learn that He loves us preemptively. We love Him because He first loved us. We learn that that He loves us sacrificially because God commendeth His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We learn that He loves us in a transcendental way. Meaning what? Meaning that He elevates us through His love. Uh, That He exalts us through His love. That He delivers us through His love. We learn who God loves And the basic fundamental truth when you get born again that you come to terms with is that God loves you. He loves you and He loved you enough that He died on the cross for you, willing to take your place. We learn who God loves. Then look at verse 12, teaching us that what? Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. We not only learn who God loves, we learn what we should leave. He says denying ungodliness... Uh, that's an inner uncleanness and worldly lust. That's an external uncleanness. And you know what the grace of God teaches you? It teaches you that where you were when God found you wasn't good enough. If if we weren't sinners, we wouldn't need a savior. But if God sent a savior, we sure enough must be sinners. It must be that if God was so, He was willing to give His own Son, that He was willing to power our own sin. We must have been in a pretty big mess. He wasn't just willing to uh, issue to us a prophet. He wasn't just willing to dispense unto us a priesthood. He was willing to give His only begotten Son for us. And that ought to tell you what a mess we were in. It ought to tell you that the way we were living and where we were headed was not good enough. This is part of the reason uh, that this. there's a big word for it, a big theologian's word. It's the word antinomianism. It's the idea that the grace of God means we can live any way we want. That's what, that's what antinomianism is. It's the idea that God saves us not to liberty, meaning we can now walk in victory and serve God in freedom, but that He saves us to license. What that means is the idea that He saved us. Now we can live any old way we want because He saved us. You won't find this idea anywhere in the Bible except where folks have taken and twisted the Word of God and where even in the early New Testament churches, one of the things that John was dealing with in 1 John with the Gnostics was this idea of license, uh, that there was no real thing in sin and a man could just live any old way we want. And he said, hey, if any man say he hath no sin, he lies and does not the truth. That's what, that's what the Holy Ghost said when he took John's pen from him and wrote it down. And the Bible teaches abundantly clear that when we truly appreciate the grace of God, it's not going to create an attitude of permissiveness in our life. It's not going to create an attitude of license, but one of liberty. We're not going to look at it and say, "Well, God saved me, so I'm living your way." We want we're going to say, "Hey, God saved me, so I don't have to live the way that I used to live." It teaches us what we should leave. Man, evidently the way we was living was pretty messed up. If God was so interested in getting us out of it that He'd go to the cross Himself to save us from it, the grace of God teaches us what we should leave. And then look at the next phrase teaches us not only what we should leave, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, the way we live prior to getting saved, but it says we should live soberly, we should live righteously, we should live godly in this present world. Not only what we should leave, but how we should live. It not only puts that old life, that dead life in the rear view mirror, but it puts the headlights right on a life of godly living and says now this is how you should live. Now remember, grace is not merely pardon. It's so much more than that. Pardon is the, is the excusing or the, uh, the exonerating from prior sins. It is, it is saying, I'm no longer going to hold those old sins against you. But the grace of God is a lot more than that. Man, He didn't just cre- uh, clean the slate. He wrote us a whole new story. He didn't just forgive us. He redeemed us. That tells me this, that not only where how I was living is not good enough, but it tells me that how I would from henceforth live apart from Him would not be good enough. That He not only seeks to change my past, but my present and likewise my future. He wouldn't go to all that expense and all that effort and all that pain and all that sacrifice to save us uh, just to wipe away the past uh, and place us in a new position in Christ Jesus unless He expected for our life to change from this point forward. He could have merely wiped the the, the slate clean and then walked away, but He didn't. He made us a child of God. Evidently, hey, when a person adopts a child, they ain't saying, I'm done with you. They're saying, you're now part of the family. When we got put in the family of God, it's not because God was done with us, it's because He was just getting started with us. So evidently, the way we live should be changed by the grace of God. Well, how is that? Notice what He says, that we should live soberly. In other words, we should live in truth and in awareness of reality. Hey, listen, the devil is the one that traffics in lies. God was the first person that to ever told you the real truth about yourself. The devil told you how you was pretty good and good enough and better than this and better than that. Uh, the, the charlatans selling false religion came along and told you how you was pretty good and, and how you was alright on your own. God was the first person that ever really told you the truth about yourself. He told you before you was ever born that you was shapen in iniquity, that in sin your mother conceived you. Before you was ever born, He already told you that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He already told you that there's none good, no, not one. <laughs> that there's none righteous. That all of them are altogether gone astray. He was the first one that ever told you the truth. So evidently, God is interested not in dealing with lies or flattery in your life, He loves you enough that He desires for you to know the truth about yourself and about your life. So why then would we think that we are to give ourselves over to a life of hypocrisy and pride once we're born again? No, of course we're not. He wants us to live soberly. Not only that, righteously. Righteously. Righteous means to be just and to be upright. It means to live a life that is above reproach and is in keeping with the tenets and truth of the Word of God. Man, this is fundamental to the Christian life. Some folks think, well, I'm saved, now I'm living the old way that I want. God never told you that. God never said that. He said, except your righteousness, exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. He didn't save you to get you out from under the law. He saved you to get you living above the law. Not so that you could live the way that you want, but so that you'd finally be enabled and empowered and equipped to live in the way that He desires for you, to live in justness and righteousness. And then He says this in godly. Now, godly is a word that we have stapled a lot of ideas to, but we know what it means. It means godlike. To be like God in character and in personality. And what greater, uh, what greater evidence could there be that God wants us to be like Him than the grace of God? For in the grace of God, He literally takes our place and then puts us in His place. Puts us in a right position with God. That's how interested God is in us being godly. So it teaches us how we should live. And then I like verse 13, man. It says this, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. So the education of the grace of God teaches us who God loves. He hath appeared to all men. What we should leave, denying ungodliness and worldly lust. How we should live soberly, righteously and godly. In this present world, there was more preaching to be done on that, but I'm going to have to just leave that meat on the bone and move on. But it also teaches us where we should look. Where should we look? Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. When you consider the plan of redemption recorded in the Word of God for the ages, what you'll find is it does not merely end with the salvaging of our years here. It extends beyond that to an eternal existence to an eternal life, and to an eternal state of fellowship with God. And as we study our Bible, we learn that the door, the entrance unto that life and unto that world for every believer is the blessed hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I understand that we all have the opportunity and the possibility of dying before the Lord returns, but that blessed hope is the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ and we all live in the strength of the reality of that promise. We live our lives looking not unto ourselves, but understanding that if He saved us, uh, He is preparing a place for us, and He's coming back to us and for us, and we now live our life in the strength of that reality. I'm no longer looking to myself. I'm now looking unto Him in expectation, in anticipation of His soon coming. In other words, you say, Preacher, what are you looking forward to now? Man, there's a lot of things I look forward to. But before and beyond everything else, I'm looking forward to the Lord Jesus coming back. And what changed that in my life? Well, the grace of God did. All of a sudden now, the imminent return of the Lord Jesus is not something for me to be feared, but it's something to be longed for. It's not something that I have to worry about. Hey, it's something I'm waiting for. I'm looking forward to Him coming back. Then He says this, looking for that blessed hope. And if you ever want to know if there's a biblical foundation for two aspects to His second coming... There's a lot of places we could look, but this is just a place where it just puts it right on the table. Puts it in a nutshell and makes it real succinct. Looking for that blessed hope and what else? And the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. You know why? Because those are two separate events. The blessed hope is the rapture for the New Testament church for the body of Christ. But the glorious appearing is what will take place at the end of the tribulation period when Christ appears in power and in glory. And you say, Preacher, why would I as a believer be looking forward to that? Here's why. Because everything is going to be set right in my life at the blessed hope. But everybody's going, everything in everybody else's life is going to be set right at the glorious appearing. In other words, the pains that I experience, the, the slights that I experience, the, the abuse that I may experience in my life, that will be dealt with when uh, the Lord Jesus comes back for His own, gives us a new body, and sets everything right in our life. But now what about those people that did me that way? Well, there's coming a day at the glorious appearing where they likewise will be dealt with. In other words, the grace of God takes my, my focus off of whatever temporal vengeance that I might be able to exercise and puts it upon the eternal promises of God that one day He's coming back to set all things right. The grace of God gets my eyes off of me, gets my eyes off of those around me, and puts my eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ and His soon coming. That's why the Bible says looking unto Jesus, why He's the author and the finisher of our faith. We'll shout about Him being the author, but sometimes we'll shy away from Him being the finisher. He's the finisher. He don't just write the first page. He writes the last page in our story. And we can trust Him to do so. We see the education of the grace of God. And then what does that produce? Well, it produces a transformation. So we have what God did in His grace... He revealed that truth unto us and when we partook in that grace through believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, that taught us some things. It revealed some things to us. It changed our perspective about some things. And that then in turn changed the way we live our lives. Look what he says in verse number 14. Who gave himself for us. Why? Why did he do that? What does it accomplish? That he might, notice three things, redeem us from all iniquity, And number two, purify unto Himself a peculiar people. And then notice He he sort of qualifies a little further. Zealous of good works. In other words, the grace of God transforms our life. It changes us. What does it change us into? Number one, it changes us into a delivered people. Why did He give Himself for us that He might redeem us? What did He come to redeem us from? From hell? No, He certainly has. But not just hell. Hey, this is part of the problem with modern day Christianity. A lot of people's concept is that when God saved them, all He saved them from was hell. He did save them from hell. Praise God, I'm not going to hell. I couldn't go if I tried. I couldn't go if you tried to send me. But He saved us from so much more than just from hell. He also saved us what? From all iniquity. In other words, He gave us a liberty... And I understand that the brokenness of my, of my flesh is going to mean that I will always struggle with sin and I understand that I have a sin nature still yet. But it did give me now the opportunity to turn away from that life of sin and to live in victory in Christ Jesus. It makes us a delivered people. Our past is dealt with. Our present is dealt with. Our future is dealt with. And now we don't have to live defeated. Now we can live delivered by His grace. We don't have to live discouraged all the time. Hey, we all all have discouraging moments and discouraging times, but praise God through His grace, we can get up, we can shake it off, we can go on with the help of God. We don't have to live in defeat. We're a delivered people. Not only that, we're a different people. (laughs) A lot of us would say amen to that. And purify unto Himself a peculiar people. Now we use that word peculiar to mean odd. And certainly I fit the bill for that. But i got to be honest, I was odd before I ever got saved. Amen? I can't blame Matt on the Gospel. But what does he mean when he says peculiar? He means different. He saved us to make us different from the world around us. It is amazing how in modern day Christianity, this philosophy of trying to align the values and beliefs and perspective of Christianity with the world has so ensnared so many people. They believe Christianity is trying to make the church look as much like the world as they possibly can. They don't believe they'll ever have a real church until it looks just like a honky-tonk. And yet that is so opposite what the truth of the Word of God teaches. Instead, the Word of God teaches abundantly and, and clearly that God saved us to change us. The grace of God suggests that we need changing And the grace of God affects that change in our lives. He sought to purify us. Because let me tell you something. If you're purified, you're going to be different than this world. Because this world is not a purer place. It's a polluted place. So by virtue of Him changing our life, we become different. So He's not talking about odd for the sake of oddness. He's not making, talking about making a spectacle out of ourselves or, or trying to do something that we can exalt and boast in the flesh about how different we are. But He's saying that if you live a life that is clean and consecrated, you're going to be different than the world around you. And that's not a bad thing. We need to, and I don't know where when we quit doing this in, in Bible Christianity, but we need to be teaching our people it's okay to be different. That's okay. Why is the, the message of the world is it's okay to be different in a depraved way. Why can't we teach our people it's okay to be different in a godly way? There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, in fact, there's something wrong with your Christianity if it looks like worldliness instead of Christianity. There ought to be a difference. In the way that we are. And how could we claim that something as big as the. I, I like this story, man. I remember hearing this years ago about a preacher that my pastor used to do this the church I grew up in. They have children's ministry. And, that, you know, they had a bus ministry. that was bringing a lot of kids in. And, and it was very evangelistically focused. And so almost every week they'd have young people that that had made a profession of faith. And I still remember it. Some of y'all went to church there. You know exactly what I'm about to tell you about. At the end of the service, they'd bring little kids in. They'd have them little green cards in their hand where they'd made a profession. And they'd bring them before the, the pastor. And and my pastor would ask them questions. And, you know, do you know that you're saved? Where would you go if you, if you died? And so on and so forth. And, And uh, I remember hearing a story years ago about a little girl that uh, went and got born again in a a children's ministry. And they they brought her out and stood her before the pastor. He asked all the questions. Honey, what would you do today? I got saved. Uh, Well, uh, how would you get saved? Well, I asked Jesus to come into my heart and and forgive me. Well, if you died right now, where would you go? Well, I'd go to heaven when I die. Well, honey, what about ten years from now? Would you still go to heaven? Yeah, I'd still go to heaven. And and, and the pastor finished. He started to move on. And a little girl spoke up and said, Preacher... And he said, yes, honey, what is it? She said, I've got a question. And he said, well, that's fine, honey, what is it? I, whatever your question is, I, I'll try to answer it. She said, if somebody as big as God lives in me now, won't he stick out? Man, out of the mouth of babes. God didn't save us to, to maintain the status quo. God saved you so He could stick out in your life. We ought to be a different people. Different than the world around us. And then notice the end of verse 14. He says this, zealous of good works. He saved us. He transformed us through His grace into a delivered people and a different people. But He also sought to transform us into a dedicated people. Most of y'all remember before you got born again, you didn't care nothing about doing good. Didn't interest you. Wasn't fun to you. Wasn't fascinating to you. But when the grace of God takes up residence in a person's life, They all of a sudden have a new hobby, and it's serving the Lord, and that's not by accident. Zealous, excited, enthusiastic—dare I say, fanatical—about serving God. The Bible says this: Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, spoke of a group of believers said they're addicted to the ministry. I like that man addicted to the ministry. Listen, we 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 ought to be so hooked on the Lord Jesus Christ. We need him worse than a junkie needs their next hit addicted to the grace of God. It ought to be there's a fanaticism in our devotion unto Him. Not oddness for the sake of oddness or for the glorifying of the flesh, but a devotion and a commitment to a life of godliness that the world does not understand. Why do we believe our Christianity is out of line if the world doesn't understand it? I'd say, man, it ain't in line if the, if the world uh, understands it. It ought to be out of step with what the world understands. So he saved us that we might be devoted, dedicated unto him. Nowhere in the Bible do you find when Christ spoke of discipleship of him minimizing the burden or the commitment. You never have anybody come to the Lord Jesus and saying, I want to be a disciple of yours and him saying, all right, well, sign on this piece of paper and I'll call you in a few months. It's always pick up your cross. Follow me. Put your hand to the plow. And don't look back. Hey, listen, keep going and serve uh, me. It's always, hey, forsake those things that are behind you and press forward under those things that are before you. You never have Him minimizing what discipleship is. You know why? Because that's antithetical. It's opposite. It's out of keeping with the message of the grace of God. Uh, listen, He didn't just pardon you. Uh, he didn't just give you a new pardon and give you a new position. He gave you a new personality within you in the person of the Holy Spirit. In other words, He took up residence in your life. Why would He do that if He didn't want to exercise His will and His power in your life? He gave you a power in the person of the Holy Spirit. He said, you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses of me. He saved you so you and I could serve you. That's why He saved us. And the grace of God teaches us that this is not merely an academic transition and transformation. It is not merely a change in accounting, but it is a radical transformation of our life from what it once was into a life that is now defined by His grace. Listen, we need to, we need to really put our hooks into this because we're living in that same broken world that they were living in then. In fact, in many ways, that brokenness probably floats at the surface a little more even today than it did in their day. And so likewise, we need the grace of God in our lives. I would say in a group this uh, like this on a Sunday night, uh, probably most everybody here, if you're not saved, you'd at least tell us you are. Uh, but I would say this, even for those that are saved by His grace, I wonder if we're walking in His grace, living in His grace, serving in His grace. I'm glad you're saved by His grace, but are you living in His grace tonight? If you're not, why don't you commit yourself afresh and anew to live in the grace of God. Father, we love You. We thank You for this time You've given us, Lord. I pray that You'd bless this invitation. I pray that Your people would get help. I pray they'd not shy away from dealing with You tonight. I pray they'd not give the flesh victory and and, and yield unto it. That they'd not give the devil right away in their life to make the decision about whether they deal with You. But Lord, that they would instead take this matter into their own hands, meet You in this altar and let You have Your will and way in their lives. Bless our time together. Father, we love You. We ask it in Jesus' name.